Uh, my name is Douglas Kill, K-I-L-L. Uh, I've been with the Michigan State Police for 29 years. Um, I started out as a trooper for 10 years and then a desk sergeant for about a year and a half. And I became a detective sergeant in 2001. Um, during that time, I was a, um, a crime scene technician, a uh, trooper investigator, which I would assist detectives in investigations. Um, once I became a detective, uh, I've been on the Berrien County Homicide Task Force for about 17, 18 years. And I also was a member of the FBI Violent Crimes Task Force also. When I became a detective back in 2001, um, when I first became a detective there, your, your caseload is pretty light at that time because there was two of us at the Bridgman Post. So I started going through all the cold case files, looking to see what was there and to kind of familiarize myself with everything that was you know, in our archives and that type of thing. And I, one of the cases I looked at was the missing person of Katherine Davidson. And I read through that, and it sure seemed like there was a lot of unanswered questions. And I would, after reading it, it seemed there's something suspicious about that. And I thought, well, probably since it's been, you know, 35, 40 years, should probably go back and, and re-interview the children. And because some of them were, you know, teens, uh, like 18, 16, 18, 14 at that time. Right. And they would be probably good witnesses to re-interview and see, you know, if there's any discrepancies in the original stories. And, of course, as as I was looking at that, things come up, pending cases arise, and it kind of got put back on the shelf. And, and, then, uh, and then in 2011, we closed that post, and everything got boxed up and shipped away. It got boxed up. Then, then where does the box go from there? Well, the box was put in archives in the basement here. And uh, back in 2017, I got a call from one of the FBI agents here in town, and one of the siblings who was born after Catherine disappeared had discussed, you know, her, I guess, missing younger sibling with the other children at the house and became aware of what had happened and took it upon herself in 2017, I think she was in her 30s or 40s at that time, to call the mother of the actual child of, of Catherine and tell her what she knew. And then, in fact, the mother of Catherine went to the FBI and told them what she had been told, and then it goes to the FBI, then they found out we had the original case, it went to headquarters in Lansing where they decided that it would be down here. They ended up calling me and says, yeah, I know where that case is at. It's in the basement here. So I grabbed it out and, and uh, we started working on it. Detective Kill and I talked about a great many things related to Kathy's case. And you're going to hear our full interview in this episode. But let me get you up to speed first. The Davidsons left Warren Dunes without Kathy, and police would continue the investigation well into the next year, following every tenuous lead and tip, which generally meant checking into every sex offender and child predator that hit their radar in the months to come. Just before the Davidsons returned home, Robert Davidson called the police post and asked the sergeant to contact Chicago PD. He wanted them to stake out their house. He alleged that a man had been there earlier that day talking to his children. 
The authorities conferred and it was decided that if Chicago PD was to be summoned at all, it should be done by the family. As with most cases that garner a local high profile, there were psychics that contacted police with information, but nothing panned out there either. Then, on September 28th, 27 days after Kathy went missing, police received a call from Al Johnson, a member of the black news media out of Chicago. He was one of the men with the group of reporters who had come previously, the day the children had been interviewed by police. The reporter had done some digging locally in Chicago, and he had the following information to share. He said Uncle Marvin Bobo, Anna's brother, who had allegedly been with them that day Kathy went missing, was an ex-con, and so was Robert Davidson, her father, although I am certain police were aware of both of their criminal records by then. Johnson advised that he had learned through his investigation that the two men were involved in selling narcotics at Governor State University, although they had never been busted for it there. He learned that three weeks before Kathy went missing, Robert Davidson and Marvin Bobo were broke. And one day they had raised all kinds of trouble at the university office, throwing things around and overturning a desk. Apparently, Anna received some sort of subsistence from the university, and that was the reason for the hubbub, a problem with them getting the money. Not long after that information came in, police got another call, this time from an ex-husband of Anna's, who told them that she had been arrested for beating his five-year-old daughter, her stepchild, in 1968, a few years before Kathy went missing in 1973. So this ex-husband, and his last name was Molden, told police that Anna spent several days in the county jail and then two weeks in some type of hospital for the mentally disturbed. When he read about Kathy going missing in the Chicago Today newspaper, something told him his information might be helpful to the case. Now you have to remember that back in the early 70s, police couldn't just quickly pull up a computer to cross-check prior crimes that had been perpetrated in other states by a person of interest. It was a lot more difficult to connect the dots back then. They often relied on calls like this to lead them in the right direction. So the investigator on Kathy's case reached out to the Warren, Ohio Police Department and requested copies of everything they had on the arrest of Anna. Back then, it was Anna Molden. The report indicates that the incident in question occurred on February 2, 1968. Anna Elizabeth Molden, age 24, of Warren, Ohio, was arrested for excessive punishment. At the time of her arrest in Ohio, Anna gave a statement admitting that she beat her five-year-old stepdaughter with a stick. The child was taken to a local hospital by her father. The doctor reported that her legs and buttocks were covered in welts and bruises. The child was admitted for observation after they took x-rays of her hips and legs to check for broken bones and because she began voiding blood from her vagina. Think about how hard you have to hit a five-year-old child to cause them to pee blood. Anna is 24 years old at this time, and the police report is scant. There's no narrative about the incident itself. It does note that she voluntarily agreed to enter the hospital for treatment, but according to her ex-husband, she only spent a few days in jail and a couple weeks in the hospital. 
With this troubling background information coming out about the parents, police still had very little to go on as far as leads that directly connected that troubling information to what may or may not have happened to Kathy Davidson. On October 16th, a month and a half after Kathy went missing, Anna Davidson called the police post at 11.07 a.m. She sounded like she had been crying and expressed concern during the interview. She asked if there were any updates on the investigation and mentioned several times that she wanted police to call them if anything developed. She asked about the possibility of Kathy being in the water, and if so, she wondered why her body had not been found. She felt that with all the swimmers in the area, someone would have seen the child. She informed police that her husband had returned to work, and then almost offhandedly remarked about how they had been to that park so many times in the past and never had any trouble. She acknowledged giving the police a hard time at first, but she now felt in her heart that they did all that they could at the time. The officer took the opportunity to ask if the Davidsons had learned anything new on their end from the Chicago area. Anna said that the children told the same story when they were asked, and the only thing that she could think of that was new was that her little son, the other six-year-old, had specifically mentioned seeing Kathy stomping her feet in the water. There was nothing else learned in that call, and the case had stalled on the Michigan end, although they had asked Chicago police to partner with them in getting background information on the Davidsons, given what they had learned from Anna's ex-husband. Michigan wanted the Chicago PD to ascertain whether Kathy ever showed signs of beatings or neglect. They wanted her friends, teachers, and neighbors interviewed. Michigan forwarded everything they had to the Chicago PD, along with all the newspaper clippings and the other arrest report on Anna from the Warren, Ohio Police Department, so they were both on the same page. The next note in the Michigan State Police report is from the following year, in July of 1975. A trooper, of all people, remarked that several of his friends said they had read in the Michigan City News Dispatch that the missing child had been found buried in the basement of the Davidson's residence in Chicago and that the father had been convicted of manslaughter. Although the friends were unable to recall the date or the time of year that they had read the alleged article in the paper. The new Buffalo Post detective contacted Chicago PD and they said they had no new information involving any homicide of Kathy Davidson. The trooper then called the Michigan City News Dispatch and spoke to a reporter, and he didn't recall any article involving a homicide in Chicago of this child. But where did this come from, these whispers about a basement and murder? Particularly when, in November of 1976, three years after Kathy went missing, the final notation on the page reads as follows. As of this time, there have not been any new developments on this case. Katherine Davidson is still missing. All investigative leads have been followed up and have reached a dead end. This complaint will be reopened if any new leads are developed. The case status was then listed as closed. What happened was I ended up partnering with the FBI on this because their resources are much greater than ours. Mm-hmm. And uh, the FBI agent here, um, she was awesome. She grabbed uh, one of their little analysts there at their office and started tracking these people down using their resources and found out where all of them lived and they ended up sending out 
leads, and then those uh, people were all uh, re-interviewed okay. by the FBI, and then I, I re-interviewed some of them by phone after that, because they're spread out all over the country. Let's go back to the initial investigation. So what I was first impressed by was how much, how many resources was put into the search efforts in the early hours, because it, it seems that the when the first uh, patrol person got on scene, it was very quickly, okay, we're not going to st- stand here and do a lot of talking. We're going to get people on the ground and start looking for this little girl. And it went for days. I mean, there was air search. There was ground search. It was just days and days. And then there was days of looking into other suspicious people, pedophiles, missing children. And what I was struck by is as the as the time went on, um, it was hard for police to get the parents to sort of sit down for a formal interview. Every time they went to try to speak with them, there was a group of people there sort of injecting themselves. And it was it felt uncomfortable to read. So I can't even imagine being an investigator trying to ask questions of witnesses. And, and there's people, you know, butting in and and reporters with, you know, with their recorders there. Explain for the listener the importance of police getting um, witnesses into the post, into the, into the station, in a room where it's quiet, and interviewing them. What's the importance of that? Well, the importance at first is the timeliness of all that. You want to get to your interviews and get as much information gathered as quickly as possible to get that out to the searchers and uh, just things that you want to know, what's going on and what happened and you know, the time, times of all this. And it seemed to me after reading this as they put things off and made the children unavailable for interviews it it didn't sit well but then you had a lot of interference with all these outside people coming in reporters and people wanting to ask questions and you want to get people into an environment where it's quiet and you can be one-on-one with them and not have more than one person you know with a barrage of questions coming at these children and it just and it just wasn't made available it seemed like there was a lot of interference going on during that time just from what i read in the in the original report there was a lot of pointing at the a birth mother or pointing in other directions or whenever the the officer would ask a question let's say about you know any background information they didn't seem to want to answer any background information at all they just wanted to um you know well did you check the storm drains or did you check this or did you check that does that sort of thing throw up red flags for police when you're when you're questioning um, family members or witnesses? It, it does. It, it's it's almost like they're trying to lead your investigation and send you in different directions when normally you get a kind of a flavor of what's going on and you kind of focus on what's happening at the time. And if people are trying to direct you off in different directions, it kind of sends up a red flag on that, especially if they're not being very cooperative. Right. It was sort of a pylon to me. I, I really got... Uh, that sense. Um, so when they, it was days later, right? When they finally got the, the children in there, it was many days. It was days. two weeks later. Oh my gosh. The initial uh, incident occurred on um, September 1st. The children were interviewed on September 14th. I mean, if I just think about my own kids <laughs> at that age, at, even from, even in teens, teens and young, and just trying to sit them down and get them to tell me something that happened a day or, or so ago, that would be difficult enough. But that just seems like you've lost so much not being able to talk to them right away. Yes, you, you'd want to talk to them immediately. What did you see? Where were you at? 
you know, when, when did you last see Catherine and where was she at when you saw her? Those things are important on a missing person because you want to actually talk to the last person who saw the, the missing person alive and where were they at and who was around there. There's a ton of information that couldn't be gathered because the children were made unavailable for almost two weeks. So did anything stand out um, to you when you read all the statements, when you just the children's statements and then the, and then the parents' statements, what they said? Was there anything that stood out to you about those statements? Well, for one thing, it was when the children were interviewed, they all had the exact same description of the clothing that Catherine was wearing. And in my experience, children don't pay attention to that sort of thing unless they're the ones that dressed them. And but some what I read, you know, Catherine dressed herself. Right. And then the, the trip up when um, some of the drivers, or ex, the brother of uh, the stepmother, said they didn't stop anywhere. But then the the parents are saying, yeah, they stopped for chicken and some other things on the way up. Differences in the stories like that kind of stand out. I mean, these are adults telling you this now, not the children, because you expect children not to have the same story because they just don't pay attention to that sort of thing. I mean, they're observant and that type of thing, but I think they're really going to remember the clothing. Yeah, and that's kind of what stood out to me is that I didn't expect them all to have the exact same story. I couldn't get probably my whole family to agree on, you know, one thing if they all saw it. And their stories were so, like, word for word. You know, it was, we jumped out of the car, we ran down to the water, um, you know, and on the way, no, we didn't stop anywhere. That that stop for chicken, that the parents were the only ones that mentioned them stopping for chicken, and none of the children mentioning it. That, to me, that was almost one of the biggest ones because if they stopped for chicken— here's my two schools of thought on that. Either they did or they didn't. If they stopped for chicken, I would expect at least one of them to say, yeah, we stopped. If they didn't and the parents are being untruthful, what it feels like is that there was a situation where maybe their statements were coached and that was a question that they did not anticipate. Was that your feeling? That I mean, did you have a feeling that they did or didn't stop? What was your feeling when you, when you heard that or when you read yeah, that? It's, well, I would think that because one of the adult children actually drove. There was the parents, the parents, the brother, and one of the younger children who was 18 at the time drove. I think he would have mentioned that they stopped because I they traveled together, right, in three cars. So you'd think that, yeah, yeah, we stopped here for 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 chicken. So besides them all having the same sort of description of the clothing, which was, a, I mean, exact word for word, every one of them. Is there anything else that stood out that felt, I mean, I've, I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I felt that it sounded coached. Is there anything that stood out to you that made it feel like that those those kids might have been coached in some way? Uh, just that the fact that their story was just so similar that they got out, they ran down, and all of a sudden everybody is separated from the parents right at, or and the, the adults right at the beginning. It, it, it just... It's just too similar. Kids remember things differently, and I think it's just, from what I read in it, it just there's just too much to it. And I actually talked to one of the original investigators who's still in the area on this when I first started looking into it uh, back in 2017, and he, he believes that there was something else going on, that the parents weren't being truthful um, from the beginning. Yeah, but but even saying that, there was so it's not like 
the the officer just went and and thought that and didn't do anything else and got tunnel vision because so much was done that nobody didn't didn't know. If they didn't have the police report, they wouldn't know all the the weirdos and pedophiles and people that were checked into out of state and in state and uh, I mean all the canvassing in the area there was a lot done and and you know I don't I want to make sure that the public doesn't get the wrong impression because there was a lot done um in that regard it was that the the police didn't just look at the parents and think you know because there was a situation where they found the parents one night um the first night I believe it was drinking beer with a, another couple right there and they weren't out searching they were yeah they were sitting in a car with another couple drinking and laughing and that doesn't sound like a distraught parent to me especially on the very first night that your child's gone missing yeah that that was another red flag but even seeing that they still they didn't just do- start you know ramming down their doors they were doing all the other things to make sure that they could rule anything else out while still trying to get information i think what what is your sense of um why it sort of stalled what is your sense of why the why they you know why if if they think in their head okay there's something sort of fishy going on what would they have needed to to get past that hump well it stalled because they've ran down every lead that came in i mean i've looked through this and anything that came in no matter how far-fetched it was even the fact that there were a couple of missing escaped mental patients i believe in indiana that they tracked down and and you just run out of leads and there's no body left. Um, there's, there's really isn't much else you can do. I mean, they've done the nationwide, uh, alerts and, you know, back in the seventies, that was quite a, a feat because you don't have the, uh, Amber alerts like you have now where information just goes out nationwide. This thing they, back then it went by teletype and it was basically just all written word. Right. And they, they ran everything down and, and it just after I think what three or three years they did this, uh, or three or four years, it just mm-hmm. stalls when you run out of things to look at. And of course, you have other investigations that are pending that come up, and you have to set this one aside and, and work on the pending stuff also. And then in October of 1977, um, the Warren Police Department received an anonymous letter, and basically, um, what what can you tell me about that letter? Well, that letter was an anonymous letter that went to Warren Police Department in Michigan, which is kind of, I don't know if it's, they meant it for Warren Dunes or Warren, Ohio, because uh, the stepmother had been arrested in Warren, Ohio on a charge. So it's kind of odd that it went there. But uh, it's four pages. I got it sitting right here, the original letter sitting right here. Four pages front and back um, telling that it was all a lie and, that uh, she was actually dead and never made it to Warren Dunes. And it is, it's quite detailed, but it's written so, I mean, the handwriting's changed quite a bit in this, and come to find out later on, it was done on purpose. I was wondering if, if the person that wrote it had done that. And, and also the, the language in it, you could sort of tell it was, you know, someone that was younger versus someone that was older. I, I felt like when I was reading it, I looked at it and I thought, okay, so if I was a police officer, what am I going to use from this to find out who wrote it? Were they able to do anything to sort of track, to track down the author at the time? Was there anything to even go on? Not really, because everything in here is, is it talks about the family. I think you've probably read it. Mm-hmm. And that the, the husband had been, um, was in the drugs and that type of thing. And it 
you know, if you don't have the author of it, how do you confirm anything that's actually in here? Right. If it's something somebody had wrote, and you're right, it was written by a younger person back in the, in the when it was written in 1977. But yeah. if you have nothing to go on, are you going to confront the parents on, okay, this is what they say? I mean, you could, but that's not going not gonna to help just accusing people of things. And then it's going to give them... Go it's going to tell them what you've got. It's going to sort of, you know, reveal that you've got this piece of information that might you might need a little bit later. Uh, the only thing that jumped out at me was the description of because the person that wrote it seemed to sort of fake um, how they saw it that day, and we'll get to a little in a, in a minute. But um, it mentioned the, the proximity to someone else living behind the house or something. Do you know if the Chicago PD did any canvassing in that area? Um, I know that the um, Michigan State Police had asked them to look for some background information at one point. What can you tell me about what they may have done? From what I could find out, it doesn't appear that they did it. Any uh, Chicago Police didn't do anything with the neighbors. Um, on this, hmm. it doesn't appear that I read anything. And I come to find out after talking to the author, it, that was that was kind of a ruse. There was this wasn't observed by a neighbor anyway. Right, correct. From what, from what I could see, that there really isn't any neighbors that had a, a, a view of what this uh, the author of this letter was talking about anyway. So maybe they did at least go down and look, and that's what they realized. There's no way to look and see what he's saying. You know, maybe that could, it's a possibility. I did send for some reports from the Chicago PD. I sent a FOIA request, so I'll see what I can get from there. Because a lot of the documents that I got were from Florida. So there were case, they were, their records uh, laws are a lot more, a lot less stringent than, say, in Michigan. So they have what's called the Sunshine Law, and they, they, I have a lot of the stuff from that, the House of Prayer side of the investigation, but there was some of the stuff that had to do with Kathy and some questions because there was a little overlap. They'd go to question someone about one thing, and then they'd ask about if they knew anything about Kathy's case, too. Um, okay, so without using any names, in 2017, the identity of the uh, letter writer is learned, and um, this person gives an account of what happened to Kathy that day, as well as a description of how it was a ruse, how she was dead before they even went to Warren Dunes. And um, there are some other secondhand witness statements that suggest that Anna's brother and um, Robert Davidson took Kathy's body and buried her somewhere in the Chicago or the outlining area. Um, both of these men are deceased now. Do you know if there's been any physical searches for Kathy? And if so, why not? Well, None that I'm aware of, and uh, the reason would be, where, where would you start looking? I mean, the young man that I talked to who wrote this letter uh, only has an opinion. He doesn't have any fact. He thinks it was a, a landfill um, based on just the amount of time that they were gone when they left with, with Catherine's body. But, you know, I, that was 40 years ago, over 40 years ago. Yeah, I think that's something that, that people don't necessarily understand when they say, oh, you've got a lead on where to go look. Well, you just you can't send people just to anywhere. Where are they going to go? If he thinks that the person was back, um, you know, they left and, and were back within a 20 or 30 minute time, what are you going to do? Search everything within a 20 or 30 mile radius? You know, I mean, there's it's impossible, exactly. you know. They could have put the, her body in a dumpster. They could have drove it someplace and buried it. You just don't know. There's no indication of from anyone of exactly where she would be. If, if that was known or just specific area, uh, certainly we would be out looking. 
I mean, Chicago PD has a lot of resources. The FBI has, has offered all of their resources. So has the uh, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They're involved with this, and they have offered all their resources in any capacity that we need to help try and find her. So let's say, for in, let's say she was buried somewhere, and and someone stumbles across her remains. What happens? What would happen? What kind of uh, chances do you give her case if if she, Kathy is is found? Well, uh, the first thing we did was we got uh, DNA from her biological mother and her biological sister, and their sister would have the DNA from both um, father. Catherine's father and mother. So should her remains be found, um, they would be able to connect the DNA. Um, if she is found and you're talking about maybe charging someone with their death, there's a lot of proof that goes in, into that. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, venue, where, 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 where would she actually died at? How did she die? And at whose hand? You'd have to prove all of that. Mm. And most of the witnesses that were actually there are deceased. And if the other person's not talking, how do you prove it in a court of law? I mean, people have rights, and if you're going to accuse somebody, you need proof. Yeah, this th- that's the the thing that drew me to this case is that I sort of felt this, this, this poor little girl wasn't, you know, she wasn't going to get, most likely wasn't going to get the justice that we, we – generally assume is justice in a court of law because of how tough it is. It would have to be someone who saw something firsthand and you'd have to have enough. And it just seems like this is a really difficult one. But um, and then I started to think about the Florida cases that, uh, you know, aunt, her her stepmother has been arrested by Flo- um, Alachua County for other crimes that it turns out. And I'll outline all this in the podcast. Um, it, what I was wondering is, do you know if what happened to Kathy would somehow come into a case um, involving her stepmother um, and other children. Is that something that they can use as far as to show some sort of pattern of behavior? That's up to the court. If she does make it to trial and they want to use past her history of arrests and abusing other children, which is documented in some cases, um, that's up to the court to allow that in testimony. You know, that's in Florida. I can't even speak for Michigan. You know, that's up to the attorneys and the judge to uh, hash out if that would even be allowed in, in court. Um, the one other thing I thought of um, I wanted to ask about is the one thing I noticed um, is that Anna Davidson did not appear to do the same types of things to her natural children, the children that were born to her, if you believe their statement saying that they were never abused and um, none of them ever died. It seemed as though she she was physically abusive to stepchildren and then to children at this house of prayer. From a from a law enforcement perspective, what does that say to you? What do you what can you say about that? Well just from what I've read in our, our case and the Alachua County uh, uh, Sheriff's Department case, it sure seems, and actually the people I've talked to that lived through this, she was quite abusive to the non-biological children. And her own children were treated very well. Um, uh, Some of the kids that I've talked to couldn't wait to get out of the house when they turned 18 
because of the abuse, the mental and physical abuse that they at the hands of her, the stepmother. Yeah, and to me, I think when I when I hear that, that's not someone who um, flies off the handle and gets frustrated and abuses. That's someone with a little bit more of a intent. You know, it's someone who is picking and choosing their victims. You know, and that makes it almost even even worse. It it you know, there's no excuse. She doesn't have some sort of mental incapacity that would excuse it. She's she's setting her sights on someone and selectively choosing victims to abuse. Yes, it seems like all the directed anger was at the non-biological children. Even so, when I talk to most of the children that were at the beach, the biological children stick with the story. Uh The non-biological children say, yeah, it was a ruse. She never went with us. And I talked to some of uh, um, the suspects' family members, extended family, and the ex-wife of the of her brother and the story is told basically that yeah she was dead and never went to the beach that day yeah i mean the the story is clear from the the witnesses that aren't blood related clearly can pretty much outline um what happened all the way through from her being put in that closet not even you know before that weekend um and, right. and being taken out and and being disoriented and then putting back in there again and i i i kept thinking my god was she like in that closet all week you know how long was this poor girl in that closet and how much did these kids see and are not admitting it's right it's I horrific. Mean, and what was the weather then it was was it hot huh? humid and stifling hot and inside this little linen closet and the, the kids had to have seen a lot more than what what they're telling yeah and and even kind through of, some of the statements that i've read um they do know some of them do know because that's how we found out information just from reading those reports i've you know th- she was heard from that closet scratching on the wall i mean that's yep. that's horrific that's i can't i i just i can't even imagine not you know knowing that and not saying anything yeah, she was even let out of the closet by one of the children, and then once um, the stepmother found out, put her right back in. I just, it's, I mean, this is, we're talking about a little six-year-old girl. This is a little girl. She's, you know, and, and what what I don't understand is the father's not intervening, nobody's doing anything, not a single person in that house is advocating for that child, except for the ones that are non-related, and when they do, they're punished, you know? It's, it's, yes, exactly. un- it's unbelievable. It's horrible. And that's why I wanted to do this, because if she doesn't get justice in a court, a court of law, at least I'd like to have her story out there. It, at least that much, I think, is important. Um, is there anything else about this case that I've missed, or any questions, or anything that you think oh. I need to note? Well, just the fact that um, the FBI agent and I did travel to Florida to interview the stepmother. And, and basically it was, you know, this is what we're told what happened by multiple people. Can you just tell us where she is? And um, so we can recover her and give her the proper burial that she deserves. Because her, her biological mother is still alive and, and would like to see that. And we tried to stress that as much as we could. And... It really didn't go anywhere. Yeah, I can't. I can't even imagine. Do you think that sh- um, that Anna knows where she is? Where Kathy's it, body is? That that's a fifty-fifty bet. You know, I would think that somebody as controlling as she is would know. 
Mm. It's not like she was she was out of control and think everybody did everything. Everything was done at her command. And yeah. that's what I believe. I believe she has to know. I hadn't thought of that, I, but you're absolutely right. Everyone that this talked about from the House of Prayer said she ran that place. She, everyone she did. Ran. Even her husband told her what uh, she told everyone what to do. She was the the leader, the ringleader. And this wasn't something that just came on late in life. She was abusing, like you said, before Kathy. She was arrested for excessive abuse way back in her early twenties. This is something that she was always doing. She didn't just find religion and decide that that sort of uh, you know abuse was part of her um, you know part of a biblical type of, of disciplining she was doing that before she she found this new religion right she was quite abusive the the things that I've read that the Alachua County Sheriff's Department has dug up the things that she's done to other children um, yeah I, yeah starting back when she was in her 20s with the arrest out of Warren Ohio and um, just some of the things that I've read that has attributed her to the punishment of these children she is in total control Either she does it herself or she has somebody do it for her hmm. and punishing these children. Well, I, I hope that um, the, some of the kids change you know, their tune and, and maybe come forward if there's anything that they know that could be helpful to finding Kathy. Because like you said, her mother is still alive. And if it was them and their child, they would at least want to be able to give their child a proper burial. So I hope, if it, I hope some of those siblings, if they know, or Anna, it, you know, any of them, anyone that can, has a change of heart and, and um, you know, can lead um, investigators to Kathy because that would be, I think, the, the most hopeful outcome that we could have, you know, at this point for her. Right. Even even give us a general area. I mean, everybody's offered to give us the resources to help search. If we can just get a general area, we can bring out cadaver dogs and, and every ground penetrating radar, and all that stuff to try and locate where she's at. And it, it, now that I recall, I did run this by our prosecutor's office, and they said not, they would not prosecute on this because of the factors that we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. So when I brought this up to the stepmother at mm-hmm. this, uh, at, when we interviewed her, um, I tried to express that to her. And I said, if she didn't want to tell me where the body was at, tell her attorney so at least there's some sort of record on it. So when she no. dies, you're right. I've seen stories like that where serial killers even have um, have written things down and then their lawyers pass that information along years later. That, you know, you'd think someone that says that they believe in God as much as she's always proclaiming to believe in God would know that the very least that she could do was some justice to that little girl. So I hope that um, if her children are listening to the podcast, if um, she gets wind of it, I hope her children especially could maybe even in in quiet moments talking to her would maybe convince her um you know to at least do that at least do that much we can only hope i guess that's the very least we can hope for this i mean to to this day she remains a missing person and we would just like to recover her and for her mother and her family just she's got a sister out there too and i want to see her brought back Thank you so much for doing this. I think this is so important for her because of, like we said, this is probably the most she's going to get. What's important to me is that people know the truth. And I think you and the original investigators through having all that documented, I think you did get to the truth. I think you know basically what happened. And so I think it's important that the siblings all know what happened. If they've, if not, if they've not been told or if uh, family members have not been told, maybe, maybe someone will convince someone else to do, you know, to do the right thing. So I appreciate you taking the time to do this so much. No 
problem. Thank you for doing this. I mean, if we can get something out there that stirs something up and give me some tips of where she might be at, that'd be great. We'll go looking. The letter was handwritten, not signed, and it came in an envelope addressed to the Warren Police Department. This is what the letter said. Some time ago, a little girl, Kathy Davidson, was lost in Warren, Michigan, sand dunes in the year of 73. It was said by the parents that their daughter was lost within seconds. Out of nowhere. I would like to say, you did honestly as a police force question that though. If the family were all on a picnic, point number one, all of them were with her. Point number two, a total of seven or eight family members. Point number three, then it would be totally impossible for her to have been lost or kidnapped. I will remain anonymous, but since the case was never closed, if you further investigate the Davidsons to this very date, you will find out that neither of the parents, Anna Davidson and Robert Davidson, are reputable people. Mr. Robert Davidson served time for armed robbery with his wife's brother, Marvin Bobo, Anna's maiden name. Both were incarcerated for the same in Detroit, Michigan, and once cellmates for six years. Marvin Bobo, since 14, was in and out of reformatory. Not until he was 29 was he released. To this very day, Marvin Bobo has been charged several times of narcotics charges. The mother, Step, has an unreputable condition also. Married several times. Number one. Maiden name, Anna Bobo, Detroit birthplace. Number two, Anna McDuffie, first husband. Number three, Anna Rollins, second husband. Number four, third husband, first name John, last unknown. Number five, Anna Robinson, fourth husband. Number six, Anna Davidson, fifth husband, named to whom is Robert Davidson. The young girl, Kathy Davidson, was seen three days before the Saturday this happened, with bruises, cuts, and scars. When asked, her mother had beaten her that summer, previously. By investigation, a report was received this child had been terrified when visiting in Detroit. Her father openly hit the child with a board in the head because the child, Kathy, and a little boy were playing in the nude under a house stairway. That Saturday morning before the Davidsons left, Kathy Davidson, from watching my window, did not go with them on that trip. I know this is a fact. What I did see was her husband and another guy drive their car on the side of the house, open the car trunk, and put a clothes bag, plaid, blue, and black, from out their back window over the gate. I will not say or come forth unless this is further investigated, but if you ask why I didn't come forth, and how do I know, my house is in back of theirs and Kathy was my friend. She was only six years old, as the same as I was sick, too. Please believe me. I'm sure as much as it has been on their family conscience, at least one would confess. Also, I was at least hoping the girl's body would be found in Chicago, nearby, within distance. I'm sure Mr. Robert Davidson knows where his daughter's body is. This letter comes off as something that was written by someone who was younger. There are words that are miswritten like mother step 
and family conscious instead of conscience, using the word terrify instead of terrified. Some of the sentences are confusing, like she was only six years old, as the same as I was sick too. And there were also some efforts to disguise the handwriting, which was learned later. So what was going on in the lives of Anna and Robert Davidson around this time? October of 1977, when this letter was making its way across the country. Well, for one thing, Anna Davidson was pregnant. In March of 1978, she would give birth to a little girl named Joy. And none of them would have any way of knowing that that little girl, who wasn't even born when Kathy went missing, would grow up to be the reason the case of the sister she never knew would be reopened decades later. That little girl grew into a woman who became the only member of the family whose voice would ring out for justice. And it would come to be the voice of all the children. You see, it wasn't just Kathy. There were others and Joy's voice would bring theirs back to life. Stay tuned.